0: Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that as believers sin, we do not lose our salvation, but we do lose our fellowship with the Lord. There is a break in the enjoyment of our fellowship because we have violated the absolute righteousness and the absolute justice of God, His holiness. Therefore, it's necessary for us to ask forgiveness. It is not that the asking of forgiveness is a work or that it has any merit in itself, but it is a recognition that Christ has already paid the price in full for all of our sins, and we are simply admitting or acknowledging to God the Father what we have done. At the instant of our confession, we are forgiven, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we resume our spiritual growth. So we take a few moments of silent prayer in order to make sure that we are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have each week to gather together to study your word. Thank you that we live in a nation that has guaranteed us the freedom in order to do this. We thank you for the protections that you continue to provide us as a nation. You continue to protect us from additional terrorist attacks and assaults, and we continue to pray for our leadership, our president, members of Congress, cabinet members, leaders of the military, leaders of various security agencies that are uh, involved in providing our protection. Father, we pray for those who are in the field, those who are at the front lines, those who are engaged in the initial line of protection and security, that you would give them wisdom and insight, and that you would uh, cause them to uh, notice the things they need to notice in order to foil the plots of those who would do us harm. Father, we realize that the greatest thing that we can do as believers is to pay attention to our own spiritual life. Scripture teaches that as goes the believer, so goes the nation. Father, we pray that as we meet together, we would be mindful of the fact that this is not some simple act of, or some simple activity that takes place weekly on a Sunday morning, but that this is one of the most important things that we do in life, and that is to take in your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study to see and understand the fantastic provisions that you have given us as believers in this church age who may understand the role of God the Holy Spirit and God the Son in our spiritual life today, and that we might be challenged to live on the basis of these realities. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but if you don't turn there, that's okay. We're going to be in other passages this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, following Paul's discourse on the judgment seat of Christ earlier in the chapter, he reminds the believers in Corinth that of the fact that they are a temple of God. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, a couple of weeks ago, we we did the basic exegesis of the verse where we looked at the different uh, elements within the context of the verse, and now we are understanding its overall significance and impact. One of the major problems that you run into in this verse has to do with the second person plural pronoun here, which should be translated, do you all, or do you all not know that you all are the temple of God? Now, that has led a number of translators to think that it is the body of Christ that is the temple of the Holy Spirit here, that it is the corporate body of the local church rather than each individual, because Paul is using a second-person plural pronoun here. However, having done extensive research in Paul's use of the second-person plural pronoun, he generally uses that because he's addressing a group of people, yet he always uses that second-person plural to emphasize individual realities and individual responsibilities. Therefore, it is not appropriate to think of this as a corporate temple or a corporate indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The second problem that is frequently misunderstood, or the second area that's frequently misunderstood in this verse, is that this temple has to do with the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ in the believer as well as God the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons that that's poorly understood is because of the various passages that talk about the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And many people teach that, well, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, but when the passages that talk about Christ in you, well, Christ's presence in you is simply mediated through the presence of God the Holy Spirit. And that creates some problems. I think it's poor understanding of the Scriptures. And so last time, or two weeks ago actually, we began a study of trying to understand the concept of being a temple of God and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. This is crucial to unpack this concept of temple of God because, number one, it's rarely done. Number two, it is a a crucial factor in uh, the spiritual advance of the believer to understand the provisions that God has given us. And third, because it is so often treated rather superficially and not actually understood in terms of the way it fits into the entire panorama of biblical revelation from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God always dwells within his people. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was in different manifestations. You had one dwelling of God on the earth uh, before the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. There was a different presence of God between the fall and the flood of Noah, Genesis 6-3, the translation in most Bibles reads, God, God says, but I will, my spirit will not strive with man any longer. In the Hebrew word there is a hapax legomena, which means it's used only one time in the Old Testament, and we understand its meaning, you know, in the, when... when uh, They translated the King James Version in 1611. They didn't have all of the resources that we have today for doing language comparisons. And so they basically took a stab at the meaning based on the context but now we have a tremendous knowledge of Ugaritic, which was is a northern Semitic language. Northern Palestine was discovered uh, in the early part of the 20th century. We also have a knowledge of the Akkadian language, which is the language the written in cuneiform that was the language of the uh, uh, of Babylonians. We also have various other texts in very closely related languages, and they all have... Uh, witnesses to this word. There's evidence of this word. And in all of the other languages, it has to do with dwelling or abiding. And so a better translation is that God says by spirit will not dwell with man much longer, indicating that there was a continued presence of God on the earth up to the flood. After the flood, he left. When he left, he delegated judicial responsibility to man. That's another reason uh, to indicate there must have been some sort of presence of God on the earth for the execution of justice because there was no judicial system delegated to man who who would uh, administer the affairs of man in terms of criminality prior to the flood if uh, man did not have that responsibility. Man did not have that responsibility, and there were probably a minimum of two and a half to three billion people on the earth before the flood. Most people think there were maybe a couple of, you know, 10 or 20,000 people. They don't think very, very deeply. But remember, uh, generations, 10 generations lived consecutively at that time, so you have a incredible increase of population simply because people are not dying off. We only have three, maybe four generations alive at one time now. But if you go to 10 or 12 generations living concurrently, then the Earth's population, think of that. Everybody who'd lived since the year 1050 was still alive. Think about that. People lived 900 to 950 years at Before the flood, so if everybody who had ever who had lived and was or who had was born since the year 1050 or 1100 A.D. were still alive, the earth would be have a population of about 20 billion or 25 billion. So because of that, there was a large population on the earth. So God always has His presence on the earth. Then He left after the flood he manifests himself in various different ways through abraham up to mount sinai then on mount sinai sinai there is a new revelation and manifestation of god and he appears in a glory cloud and in the old testament we saw that god's presence is almost always referred to in terms of the glory of the lord this this presence of god the pillar of fire at night the pillar of the cloud during the day that is evidenced as the glory cloud of the Lord. The rabbis during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament coined the phrase Shekinah from the Hebrew word Shekinah, meaning to dwell. So this has to do with the dwelling of God with his people Israel. And the dwelling place, the location where the infinite, omnipresent God localized himself Was above the cherubim who sat on top, or who stood on top of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And we studied that last time, how the mercy seat was a picture of God's mercy, but inside the box, the Ark, which is a term meaning box or casket, inside the box was located three items, the Uh, table of the law, which indicated man's rebellion of God. He had broken God's law, violated what God had provided him in terms of commandments. Second, you had the uh, Aaron's staff, which had budded. A a staff is usually made made from a piece of dead wood, and this staff uh, miraculously produced shoots and green growth. In an episode where there was a rebellion against Aaron's leadership, and so God said, oh, okay, those of you who think you could do a better job than Aaron, uh, put your staffs in the, in the tabernacle, and the next morning the one that has produced new life is the one whom I've chosen. So Aaron's staff produced new life, indicating that was God's chosen leadership, and that rod, that staff was placed in the ark in order to signify that Israel had rejected God's provision of leadership. There was also some samples of manna, God's provision of logistical grace and food, while the uh, Jews were wandering in the wilderness. Because they had grumbled and complained about the manna, they wanted to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt. They... uh, God had manna put in there because it indicated their rebellion against and rejection of his provision. So the three items inside the box represented man's sin. The mercy seat on top represented God's solution to sin. And it's that mercy seat where the high priest would bring the blood offering each year on the Day of Atonement and he would place that bowl of blood on the uh, on top of the ark and the two cherubim that looked down upon it represented God's holiness and justice and that that is satisfied or propitiated by the sacrifice and that was a picture of what Christ would do as a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ would do in providing full salvation for mankind on the cross and that is the doctrine of propitiation all of that is just background we've seen that there is a presence of God, that presence was called the glory of the Lord, and that presence was also described as the Shekinah in later terms. So now we come to the point where we need to identify which member of the Godhead is present in that Shekinah cloud. Now, we're building this case slowly, but surely next time we will be uh, looking at how this relates to the temple ministry here of God, the Holy Spirit in 316. But we have to have all of this background, all, because when you get a phrase like temple of God in the New Testament, you must understand that on the basis of everything that's said about temple in the Old Testament, because that's the frame of reference, not The temple in Greek society, not the temple in pagan religions, but temple as it was manifested in the Old Testament. So this morning we're going to cover the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. That Jesus Christ is the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. The person of the Godhead represented in the glory cloud was not... God the Father, and it was not God the Holy Spirit. It was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, whose role and responsibility within the Godhead is to reveal the Godhead. So point number one, we need to recognize that Jesus Christ preexisted the virgin conception and birth. Jesus Christ preexisted the virgin conception and birth. You see, there are those who think that, that Jesus Christ began his existence with the virgin conception and birth. So if we were to chart this, we would, out here on the left, we have eternity past. Then we have, at this point, creation, where God creates the uh, universe. Then we have, uh, first he created the angels then he created the universe then you have a period of judgment on the angels and then there is the restoration of Genesis chapter 1 then you have the old testament period that ends with or that ends at the cross but we have the old testament period culminating in the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ so some people take the view that Jesus began at that point And then he is going to live forever. Then there's another group of people called, in the early ages of the church, they were called Arians after a Egyptian presbyter by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S. And they were called Arians, those who followed him. And they believed that while God the Father is eternal... And that Jesus Christ clearly pre-existed the virgin conception and birth, but He's not eternal. He is created at some time in eternity past, and, but He is not eternal, and that He then becomes, uh, incarnate at the virgin conception and birth. And His key phrase is, there was a time when Christ was not. Now, folks today who believe this same heresy are called Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon observed. And Arianism was condemned in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. So some of you who grew up in... Uh, churches where you recited various creeds. If you ever recited the Nicene Creed, that's why it was written, and that's the main thrust of it as a doctrinal statement, is to affirm the eternality of the second person of the Trinity. So that's Arianism. And the biblical truth is that all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equally eternal. There is no beginning and no end to them as individual persons, and yet in the doctrine of the Trinity they share in identical essence. They are a unity. And that's the thrust of the Hebrew word that is used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, Adonai Eloheinu. Echad is the Hebrew, and it has to do with this unity. There is a um, uh, a different word that would indicate singularity in terms of simply being one. So when echad is used there, the emphasis is on the unity of the Godhead. So we believe that God is three persons and one essence. Therefore, he is both one and three. And Jesus Christ is the manifestation on earth, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. So he preexisted the virgin conception and birth. And this is the clear testimony of the scriptures. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus stated, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me for him to come down from heaven means that he must have been in heaven as a distinct identity and person prior to the incarnation John 17:5 this is in the context of Jesus prayer to God the Father what is known as his high priestly prayer when he is praying to the Father the night before he goes to the cross At that time he prayed, and now glorify thou, thou, the second person singular there referring to God the Father, now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So that indicates that he had a glory with the Father that was identical with the Father's prior to the existence of the world, prior to the existence of the present universe, uh, Genesis 1-1. Also em- emphasize in this passage that glory is the co- key concept we're looking at in terms of the Shekinah. He is the glory of God. He had the identical glory that God the Father had uh, from eternity past. Then in verse 24 of John 17, he goes on to say in that prayer, Father, I desire that they, that is the disciples and those who would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior as a result of the witness of the apostles, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. So this again affirms that that Jesus Christ believed and knew that he had existed prior to the creation of the world and had this glory from the Father. Now, this brings up an interesting dimension of this argument, and that is the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in terms of their function, what theologians call the economic function of the Trinity as opposed to their essential function. See, essence has to do with the concept of essential function. Economic has to do with their, their, their role, what they do. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are identical in essence. They, there is nothing that the Father has that the Son lacks. There is nothing that the Spirit has that the Father and the Son uh, lack there is nothing that the father and the son have that the spirit lacks they have equal they're equally omniscient they equally know all things they're equally omnipresent they're equally omnipotent they are equally immutable there is nothing that changes in father son and holy spirit therefore they do not grow or increase in power in knowledge or anything else it is eternal and infinite Yet they have distinct roles, roles that are assigned within the Trinity. That is what Jesus means in this verse when he says that this glory is that which God has given to him. God the Father is always viewed as the ultimate authority inside the, uh, inside the Trinity. He is the ultimate. He has the same glory that the Father had from eternity past, but it is derived from the Father, not because he is a creature, but in terms of his role or function. Terms of his role or function. Another verse that has to do with the eternality of Christ and his preexistence, but prior to the virgin conception and birth, is found in John chapter one, two verses actually. John one fifteen where we read John, that is, John the Baptist, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, that is, temporally the one who follows me in time, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, if you go back and you really read the birth accounts of, of uh, John the Baptist in Luke 1 and Luke 2, and the account of Jesus' birth, you know that John is about six months older than Jesus'. So when John says he existed before me, even though John the Baptist is six months older in time than Jesus, he is making a statement that Jesus Christ existed before uh, John the Baptist was even conceived. So again, there is an affirmation that uh, Jesus is eternal. Then we have the key statement in John 1.18 that no man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. This is reaffirmed in several other passages in the New Testament, that if no one has seen God at any time, then who was it that Adam and Eve spent time with in the Garden of Eden? Who was it that Noah talked with? Who was it that Enoch walked with in Genesis chapter 5? Who was it that Abraham had dinner with in Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15? Who is it that that Moses spoke with? Uh, on Mount Sinai. Who was it that uh, appeared in the Old Testament? Who was it that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego inside the fiery furnace? Wasn't God the Father because this clearly states no man has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten God, this is a title for Jesus Christ as referring to his role within the Trinity, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So this passage defines the role of the second person of the Trinity, and that is that it is by looking at Jesus Christ that we are able to know and understand God the Father. So that is only true if Jesus is eternal as the Father is eternal and has been with him prior to the virgin conception and birth. Colossians 1.16 we read, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And there we see that he created all things, so he he is the one who actually did the creation. God the Father is the one who planned it and designed it. God the Son is the uh, building contractor. He's the one who did the actual work of constructing the universe. And then it is God the Holy Spirit's role to reveal uh, information about God the Father and God the Son. So in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, we have another affirmation from Paul that Jesus Christ preexisted the virgin conception and birth. So that's simply point one with attendant scriptures. Now point two, we know that in the Old Testament, Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, that Isaiah had a vision of God where he hears the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, am I not on the screen? Okay, where we see uh, Isaiah has a is before God. It's not God the Father, but we know from um, John, uh, or excuse me, we know from uh, the Gospel of John that Isaiah's vision was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. So our first point: Jesus Christ pre-existed the Virgin Conception and Birth. And then, second point, Isaiah's vision in the Old Testament, which was dated in the 7th century BC, is equated to a vision of the pre incarnate Christ. And a passage on this is found in John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. John chapter 12, verse 37. That the words of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Now the context is that John is explaining why it was that despite the fact that Jesus had performed many miracles before the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they still rejected him. See, this is one of the best arguments that you can find against the so-called modern uh, signs and wonders movement, which is also called the Vineyard movement or Third Wave, and it's uh, a a um, development within the charismatic tradition, that's the idea that, that God attests continually throughout all ages, attests his word with signs and wonders and miracles so that people will believe. In fact, the founder of that movement, John Wimber, wrote a book called Power Evangelism where he said, you know, we would have more. Uh, response to evangelism if we have actually had, if people believed there would be miracles attending the proclamation of the gospel and then more people would get saved. So that puts everybody on a guilt trip because you don't believe in miracles. So it's your fault, not not the fact that the individuals are uh, rejecting the gospel. But even when Jesus was on the earth, he had uh, tremendous miracles, miracles unlike any of these so-called miracles that are Performed today, and yet he was continuously rejected. See, the signs simply provide evidence, but they Don't convince someone because the ultimate issue isn't empiricism. It isn't empirical demonstration of the truth of Scripture. The ultimate issue isn't rationalism. It's not reasoning somebody into heaven. The ultimate issue is whether or not you're willing to believe and trust that God exists and that he loves us and that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. It's an issue of faith alone in Christ alone, faith in the revelation of God as opposed to human experience or human reason. So in John chapter 12, uh, John is explaining that why the this rejection has taken place and relates it to the prophecy of Isaiah in verse 38. This has taken place, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their hearts and he hardened their, uh, blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. That is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, not God the Father. So once again we know, that Jesus Christ preexisted the virgin conception and birth, and point two, Isaiah's vision is equated to a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, the New Testament, point number three, the New Testament presents Jesus Christ as the God of creation. Jesus Christ is presented as the God of creation in several passages. Uh, let's turn and look in, in your Bible to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John 1, 1 through 3. There John writes, in the beginning was the word. And when he uses that phrase, in the beginning, he is specifically alluding back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So he begins, in the beginning was the word, using an imperfect tense verb in the Greek, which implies continuous existence in past time. So by saying, in the beginning... That's a point in time. We could put it on a timeline like this. At some point you have eternity where there is no time. And time begins at a a particular point. So we'll draw a dot here for that point in time. And that's the beginning. Genesis 1-1, when God creates the space-time universe. And what John is saying is at that point in time... Jesus Christ, the Logos, was. That is, he continuously existed in past time. And if we were to use a graph or chart to chart out the imperfect tense, it would be a continuous line. So we see that when space-time created, John says Jesus Christ, the second person the Trinity, was already in existence and continued to exist. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, the most clear affirmation of the full deity of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. The Logos was God, fully equal to God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That's a exclusive statement. All things were made through him, everything, angels, all things material, immaterial, physical, uh, spiritual. Everything is made through him, and nothing that has existence was made apart from him. Paul restates this principle in Colossians one sixteen, where he says, for by him, for by him all things were created. And this first phrase, notice in the verse, let me read it all the way through for you. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Now twice in this verse you have the English phrase, by him you have it located up here at the very beginning and then in the last clause created by him but though they are the same in english they are distinct in greek the first phrase is uh the preposition in plus the dative uh third person pronoun autos meaning that uh, it was done in instrumentality by the agency or instrumentality of jesus christ by him all things were created and yet the last phrase, it uses a different preposition, dia, and dia indicates uh, intermediate agency. So that let's say you delegate responsibility to your wife to take the kids to some uh, activity, their piano lesson or football game or something like that. Then it is, the, the father is the one who is the, the ultimate source And that would be indicated in the Greek by the preposition ek. That indicates the ultimate source of sending the child to the football game. But if the mother is the one who is the intermediate one who actually carries out the role, then her role would be expressed by the preposition dia, indicating that she's the one who carries out the task, but it's an intermediate agency. So when uh Paul writes in Colossians 1:16 that all things have been, been created by him it's a recognition that he is the intermediate agent and there is another agent that is the ultimate agent and this is more clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 where scripture says yet for us there is but one god the father from whom are all things, and that is the preposition ek, indicating ultimate source. Ultimately, all things are from the Father as the planner and chief architect of the universe. And we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And there we have dia, uh, plus the genitive, indicating the intermediate source, that is, Jesus Christ, who is the one who fulfills the work of creation. Fourth point, an understanding Jesus as the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ's glory is presented in the same way as the Shekinah glory is presented in the Old Testament. His glory is identical to the glory of God that's presented in the Old Testament. And here we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's also another passage that relates to the previous point. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is supports both point 3 and point 4. Jesus Christ's glory here is presented in the same way as the Shekinah glory is presented in the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, indicating that God used various means of communicating revelation in the Old Testament. He used dreams. He used visions. Sometimes he spoke, as he did with Moses, uh, mouth-to-mouth or face-to-face. Uh, other times he used um, indirect means of communicating with the prophets. So God does not restrict himself to, met- to one particular methodology. God did not reveal the Scriptures, incidentally, through dictation. That would indicate then that, that everything would indicate the same personality, yet there are tremendous differences in style between the authors, indicating that they wrote that God in, in inspiration did not override their personality, their education, their individual styles, but he used that and overrode what they wrote in such a way or superintended it in such a way that he guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error. So God spoke long ago to the fathers, that's the Old Testament writers, to the, or, or, excuse me, to the fathers, that is the Old Testament leaders, uh, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways. In these last days, that is a term that refers to the entire, uh, church age and goes on into, uh, the millennial time. A very broad term. It is not a technical term for the end of the church age. Uh, Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. So His Son is the revelation of Himself. That takes us back to uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus Christ is the one who has explained the Father. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. There's our creation statement again. Through whom, dia plus the genitive. It is Jesus Christ through whom, is the intermediate agency, God made the world. And then we come to verse 3. And he, that is Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of his glory. And the Greek word here is apagasma. Let me put that on the overhead for it. It's a very important word for understanding this passage. Apagasma. And A P A U G A S M A, and it has to do with a uh, almost like an explosion. You see, we just had Fourth of July, and you go out and you watch a fireworks display, and you see some of these uh, pyrotechnics explode. And it's just a brilliant flash, and that's what it's like. It's the flashing forth. It is the, uh, in in that sense, it would be a visible expression. Uh, of, of radiance, and it's a, a, a powerful image that uh, the writer of Hebrews uses here, that Jesus Christ is the uh, flashing forth, he is the, he is the radiance of his glory. So he is the visible expression of the glory of God. So here we have a clear affirmation that it is Jesus Christ who is that flashing forth that radiance that expression of God's glory and the exact representation and there we have a word that's familiar to you in an English transliteration hypostasios from which we get the word uh, hypostatic and hypostasis has to do with a uh, individual existence he is the exact representation of of God so he is identical to God in his uh, nature, which is the Greek word here, character, which is where we get our English word character having to do with his essence. He is the uh, visible expression of the essence of God. And Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. So the fourth point demonstrates that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ's glory is, is presented in the same way as the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Now the fifth point, Isaiah ties these concepts together in the Old Testament. He ties these concepts of the glory of God together for us in the Old Testament, and this is then referenced or alluded to in the New Testament when Jesus Christ's glory is manifested. So we're going to start. This is a lengthy point indicating a connection between Isaiah's view of the glory of God and how that is picked up in the Gospels in reference to Jesus Christ. So we'll start with Isaiah 37. Um, uh, we'll start with Isaiah 37:16. But before we get there, I left out one verse in point four. And that is Jesus' statement to Philip, How long have have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus' statement there to Philip that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, can only be true if Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God the Father. There's no distinction. You're not going to learn anything more, Philip, if you saw the Father than if you see me. No difference whatsoever. You're not going to learn anything more. You're not going to realize anything more. There's not going to be any distinction. Okay, now let's go to Isaiah. Point number five. Isaiah 37:16. Isaiah writes, O Yahweh of hosts. Notice the terminology here. He's talking to the Lord of the armies. Yahweh Sabaoth. O Yahweh of the armies, the God of Israel. So he addresses the God of Israel as Yahweh Sabaoth. This is the Yahweh who is, you are enthroned above the cherubim, and that is where? That is in the tabernacle above the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and again in the New Testament, I mean, excuse me, after uh, Solomon's uh, temple, above the cherubim, the the large uh, six-foot-tall cherubs that he put in in place there. You are enthroned above the cherubs, thou art God, thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made, Asa here is the Hebrew word, Asa, you have made heaven and earth. So here we see a connection. He is addressing the God of Israel, Yahweh, as the one who made heaven and earth. Now, we have just seen as a result of our study in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that it is Jesus Christ who is the uh, actual agent of creation. Now, the first phrase, Yahweh of hosts, Enthroned above the cherubim, and it reminds us of the Psalm we looked at last time. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So these are talking about the same personality in the Godhead. Now this kind of idea is tied, picked up and tied together in a couple of fascinating statements surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke so turn with me over to Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 verse 68 and this is the statement of the father of John the Baptist regarding the the role of his son now remember his father's Zechariah Zechariah and Zechariah was a high priest or excuse me a priest Whose lot came to take care of the sacrifices in the, uh, in the temple. And when he goes in, he is going to have an angel announce to him that his wife is going to be pregnant. Now Zechariah and his wife, were, Elizabeth, were aged and she's beyond the uh, birth, uh, 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 the age where a woman would give birth. And so Zechariah doesn't believe the angel, and as a result, he is struck uh, mute, and he can't speak until the uh, baby is born. And finally, John the Baptist is born in verse 68, and Zechariah speaks. Verse 68, we give his uh, announcement uh, or his praise of God. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Notice the terminology and the use of the term Lord God takes us back in the Old Testament to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We could connect that with our study that we've done in detail on the suzerain vassal treaty form. This is Yahweh, the vassal God, or the suzerain God of Israel. Israel is the vassal to God. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So he is connecting the redemption of this, the, the birth here of a, uh, that he's going to announce with the Savior Jesus Christ back to the Lord God of Israel. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now that is an allusion to Second Samuel seven eleven and following that uh, is the Davidic covenant. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, that is the covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant that he would bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, verse 73, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And now he ties this in to the birth of his own son in verse 76, and he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Now, when he says this, he is alluding to a prophecy in Isaiah. See, we started in Isaiah 37, 16, where Isaiah is tying the glory of God and the role of Israel to that glory that was above the cherubim. Then we go to Zechariah's statement, and then we go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, where we have the prophecy of John the Baptist, a voice is calling, Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Notice when this verse is stated in the Old Testament, it uses the tetragrammaton, which is transliterated into the capital letters, indicating the sacred four letters that are used to describe the proper name of God, Yahweh. In the Old Testament, and yet when that's picked up and applied in the New Testament, Yahweh in that passage is applied not to the Father, but to God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one whose way in the wilderness, uh, John the Baptist is is preparing. Verse four: Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. It is after John the Baptist. His role is to to make straight the path to pronounce and to announce the coming of the Messiah. And when he comes, what are we told? Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, in the Old Testament, the term glory of the Lord referred to what? Referred to the... Glory cloud in the tabernacle and in the temple. So here there is a direct connection between the glory of the Lord as Isaiah announces it and as it is realized and understood in the New Testament with the manifestation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This same kind of thing is reiterated again just a chapter later in Luke in Luke chapter 2 verse 32 when the infant Jesus is being presented after 8 days according to the law of Moses he's being presented by his mother and father uh father uh not of his humanity but adopted by sort of foster father Mary's husband uh, they're bringing Jesus, the infant Jesus, into the, into the uh, temple. And they run into this uh, old saint, Simeon. Verse 25, Behold, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a term for the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was appointed upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen... The Lord's Messiah. So he came by the Spirit. That is that God, the Holy Spirit is in, uh, moving him to go to the temple that day. He may or may not have been aware of that. He just knew that, that he should go to the temple that day. And then he saw the, the baby, verse uh, 27. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So there he is tying Jesus back to the glory of Israel in the Old Testament. Furthermore, this is an allusion to such passages as Psalm 41:13, "Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting." Psalm 106:48, "Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting." See, he uses the same phraseology, bless and, and blessing to God, same as in Psalm 72:18. And then there is the connection to Jesus as the light and glory of Israel. Through him the promise would be fulfilled, and this is seen in such passages as Isaiah forty six thirteen, where God says, "I bring near my righteousness; it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel." Then in Isaiah sixty verses one and two are one through three, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In these verses we see that it is God's glory that's related to his light and it is that light that attracts the nations and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, point number six Paul uses several Old Testament passages which use the Greek word kurios, Lord, for Yahweh in order to refer to Jesus as Yahweh. For example, in Romans 10.13 we read, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The term kurios is used there for Lord. But that's a quote from Joel 2.32 which reads, in the Hebrew, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. So Paul takes that term Yahweh and converts it to Kyrios and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 10:13. Then again, in Philippians 2:10, we're told that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And this is a reference to Isaiah 45:21, where we read, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from old, who has long since declared it. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So God's statement, the statement in Isaiah 45 is not from God the Father speaking, but is the glory of Israel speaking, who is then identified by Paul as the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have point number seven. Uh, connection between key verses in the New Testament indicating that Jesus is this glory of the Old Testament. John 1.18, we've seen already that no one has seen God at any time, but it's the only begotten God who's explained him. Then in 1 John 4.12, a passage that we're going to uh come close to in the second hour no one has beheld god at any time once again the same statement if we love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us john 14:9 jesus said if i've been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me philip you know me you know the father and in john 14:10 do you not believe that i am in the father the father is in me the words that i say to you i do not speak on my own initiative but the father abiding in me does his work conclusion point number eight jesus christ is equal to the lord of glory in the old testament in fact in john 114 which says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us the greek word for dwelling there is not the word abiding which you're used to it's not the word or or form of it that we have with the holy spirit it's the greek word skene, which is actually a transliteration from the Hebrew word Shekinah. And notice when Shekinah begins with a sh sound in English, but this represents one letter in Hebrew called a sheen. And that is pronounced uh, as sh. But the Greeks couldn't pronounce an sh, they didn't have an sh sound in their uh, alphabet. So when it comes over to Greek, you have the phrase in Hebrew sh. K N, and when it comes over into Greek, it becomes S K N, skene, instead of Shekinah. So skene in First in um, John one fourteen is equivalent and to or it's a transliteration of Shekinah. So there's a direct statement there in John one fourteen that Jesus Christ is the one who dwelt among us. He Skaneas or tabernacles among us. And that is used in the same context where John refers to Jesus as light and glory back in verse 9. You could also compare that with Philippians 2, verse 6, and James chapter 2, verse 1. So the conclusion then is that in the temple of the Old Testament, the temple is a housing for the glory of the second person of the Trinity that house was constructed by man by the Jews in the old testament but in the new testament what we'll see the next time is that God the holy spirit is going to construct by means of sanctification a dwelling place for Jesus Christ who is going to produce his glory in us so and that is going to bring us to some fun passages that Paul uses or Paul explains in second Corinthians uh, next time, that we, as we advance in our Christian life, we demonstrate His glory in our life. It is a glory that is not necessarily the brilliant radiance that was demonstrated either in the Old Testament or on the Mount of Transfiguration, but is a glory that is manifested through character. And that character is then defined in Galatians 5 as the... Uh, fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity uh, once again to study your Word, to understand the fantastic things that you have done for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the tremendous provision you have given us in terms of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and, and Jesus Christ who indwells us. And, Father, we understand that this is the foundation for everything that we can do and everything that we are expected to do as believers in the church age. Father, we pray, too, that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You do not need to join a church. You don't need to make some sort of deal with God that you'll improve your life. You can't do that. You 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 will not. Um, you don't have to be engaged in any sort of ritual. You don't have to be associated with any specific group of people. Scripture says all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.18 states that he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny certain simply by believing Christ is your Savior, that he died on the cross, was buried according to the Scriptures, and rose again according to the Scriptures, that he died as a substitute for your sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied this morning and that you would make them real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.